How does God save a sinful person like you and a sinful person like me? In the recent weeks, we have been reminded that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that Jesus is the sole sufficient Savior for mankind. But how does a person go from iniquity to innocence, from guilt to grace, from sin to salvation? How does God save a sinner like you and a sinner like me? It is to this question that the Apostle Paul gives an answer in Romans chapter 4. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 4. I want to read it in its entirety, verses 1 to 25. So if you're able and willing, I encourage you to stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As together we examine Romans chapter 4, I'll begin at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trust God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from his works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that, had, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So that he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. So it may be by grace. It may not be guaranteed, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope. 
Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Paul's critics leveled this against him. They said his preaching is nothing more than a license for loose living. He speaks of a gospel of grace. Yet that gospel of grace, they said, was in contradiction to the Old Testament scriptures and the law of God. And Paul responds in Romans chapter 4. By saying, regardless of whether you live 2,000 years before the coming of Christ or whether you live 2,000 years after the coming of Christ, there is only one way that any of us are justified. There's only one way for any of us to be saved. The apostle says this is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. That God has always and only had one method of justification. That God, who is the author of the Bible, has the salvation of humanity as its storyline. And it is consistent through all the 66 books of our Bible. That God has always said, I only have one way to save sinners. Paul speaks of this salvation as justification. He gives us a well-crafted argument. It's detailed at some points. In essence, what he constructs, he tells us how we are not justified before he tells us how we are justified. In fact, on three occasions, he says we are justified not by this. And then at the conclusion of the paragraph and the passage, he says this is the way that we are justified. So first and foremost, Paul wants us to know that we are not justified by works. Before we go any further, let's just be very clear on that word justified. The word justified means more than merely the forgiveness of sin. It was Warren Wearsby who reminds us that if you break the word justified into its syllables, you can read something like just as if I'd, then you add never sinned. And certainly, justification means that all of our sins have been forgiven. But it's more than that. 
For if justification merely meant the forgiveness of sin, then you and I would be morally neutral in the sight of God. Neither guilty nor innocent, just merely forgiven. It was Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology who wrote this of justification. He said justification is the instantaneous legal action of God whereby God reckons our sin as belonging to Jesus and the innocence of Christ as belonging to us. Now that, my friends, is the sweet swap of salvation. We give him our iniquity, he gives us his innocence. We give him our guilt, he gives us his grace. We give him our sin, he gives us his salvation. So in justification, it's not only that our sins are forgiven, but we have cloaked and robed upon ourselves the declared innocence of Christ. So it's almost as if we have lived out the righteous deeds of Christ. Now that deserves a hearty amen. Because when you and I are justified, it is not only that we are forgiven of sin, but it is that God deems us as innocent as Christ, both now and forevermore. So Paul wants to make it very clear how a person is justified. And his argument is this justification is by the same method, whether you lived a long time ago or whether you and I live in the 21st century. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So the way he saves sinners is the same. And first and foremost, we are justified not by works. It's important for Paul to start there his overarching analogy and illustration is Father Abraham. And if there was anybody who the first century audience would have maybe assumed could be justified by works, it was Abraham. I mean, Abraham did some mighty massive deeds in the sight of God. Let's just re review a few of them as we think about him this morning. It was in Genesis chapter 12 that we are reminded that the Lord spoke to Abraham and told him to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go to the city and the land I will show you. And Abraham obeyed. When you realize that Abraham had always lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, he had established deep roots in that area, and his God told him, pick up everything that you know, and I want you to go to a place that I will show you. You just simply have to trust my GPS system. You trust me and I will give you a turn-by-turn -turn navigation. And Abraham believed God. The Lord said to Abraham, I will bless you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. All the nations on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And Abraham simply believed. He had a beautiful wife named Sarah. They'd been married for many years, but one thing seemed to elude them. They desperately wanted to have a child, but the Bible says that Sarah was barren, which means that she was unable to conceive. I'm sure that as the years passed, Abraham would ask God, 
Lord, how am I going to be the father of the nations if I cannot even father a child? In Genesis chapter 15, the Lord told Abraham, go outside and look up into the heavens. Count the stars if you can. For as numerous as the stars in the sky, so shall your offspring be. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was credited unto him as righteousness. He believed God. He took God at his word. God said it, and Abraham believed it. He didn't know how it was going to happen. After all, he was already an old man. He had never fathered one child, yet he believed that the God who led him out of Ur of the Chaldeans made a promise, and he could make good on the promise. So Abraham believed God, and it was credited unto Abraham as righteousness. This is one of the most noble moments in Abraham's life. But that nobility is quickly followed by ignorance. Because in Genesis chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah grew impatient. It had been many years, month after month after month, all the hopes had been dashed into disappointment. So they thought they'd take matters into their own hands. So Sarah came up with this idea. Abraham, what if I give you my Egyptian maidservant named Hagar? You could sleep with her, and maybe you could build a family through her. Now, friends, I always marvel at the readiness of biblical men to sleep with a woman, not their wife. You would expect Father Abraham, this man of great nobility and faith, to say, No, baby, you know I can't do that. You're my girl. There ain't no way I could do that. But instead, Abraham says, okay, I'll take one for the team. So he hooks up with Hagar. She conceives, give birth to a son. His name is Ishmael. Because of the disobedience of Abraham and Sarah, we now live with 4,000 years of animosity between the children of Ishmael, the nation of Islam, and the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish nation of Israel. We live with 4,000 years of fighting between these two peoples simply because Father Abraham and his wife were impatient. There's a sermon there for another day, but I can't stop and preach it at this moment. It is Genesis chapter 17, where God revisits Abraham and says to Father Abraham, by this time next year, your wife Sarah will conceive and give birth to a son. I am so certain of this, God says, I'm gonna give you the seal of the promise. I'm going to give you the seal of the covenant, circumcision. So at the age of 99, Abraham circumcised himself. At the age of 13, he circumcised Ishmael. And then Abraham lined up all of his male servants in his household and he circumcised them. Now friends, I just got to tell you, Abraham must have a steady hand. Because God 
trust Abraham with a dagger on many occasions in life. Can you imagine being the male servants of Abraham? Abraham has up to now been a pretty good boss. I mean, he has been one who's very wealthy, very extravagant. He's been one who has treated the servants well. And all of a sudden, one day he tells all the servant men, line up. Can you imagine the men in the back of the line asking the question, what's boss man doing up there? What's happening? And somebody just says, I don't know, but he's making grown men cry. Ooh, can you imagine what it felt like to be a servant of Abraham on that day? But Abraham believed God, took him at his word. God said, by this time next year, the promised child will come. And God gave the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And Abraham was so serious that he said, not only me, but my entire household will faithfully serve God. So every male servant, every male belonging to Abraham was circumcised. Genesis chapter 21, Sarah conceives. The unthinkable takes place. The one who is barren now has a fruitful womb. She conceives, she gives birth to a bouncing baby boy. His name is Isaac. He is the child of promise. Now Abraham knows that everything God has said to him will be fulfilled because God promised. And Abraham believed. But then Genesis 22 happened. God tested Abraham. Take your one and only son, Isaac. Take him up Mount Moriah. There I want you to sacrifice him unto me. Oh, Abraham knows that God does not delight in child sacrifice. He also knows that the promise will be rendered and passed through Isaac. So how is this going to happen? Yet in obedience and in faith, Abraham takes Isaac. They travel with some of the servants, and on the third day, they look up and they see Mount Moriah in the distance. Abraham says to the servants, y'all stay here. For the boy and I, we will go worship and we will come back. Some of you may know the story. They make their way up the mountain. Isaac has the wood strapped to his back. And it's there in dramatic fashion that Isaac is laid on the altar. Father Abraham raises the dagger that shimmers against the Palestinian son. And at the very last moment, it is God the Father who speaks and says, Abraham, Abraham, don't. Stop, do not kill your son, for now I know that you will not withhold anything from me, not even your one and only son, Isaac. And there was caught in the thicket a male lamb caught by its horns. Yeah, if there was anybody who you might think could be justified by works, it might be Abraham. But Paul, in our passage, uses the illustration of Abraham and says... He is justified not by works. Look with me in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, then he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Repeatedly in this passage, in this well-constructed argument, the apostle Paul will drive the congregation back to the scripture. What does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? What does the sacred text tell us? Why? Because the sacred book is our authority in our lives. It does not lie to us. It always tells us the truth. It's not a myth. It is fact. It is not a fable. It is true. The word of God is what we stand upon. And here, the apostle 
drives the congregation, drives the people of God back to the scripture. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says that Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. When a man works, his earnings or wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. So there's nothing that Abraham could have done to earn this justification. No way was God obligated to give it to Abraham because somehow Abraham had deserved this or earned this. No, it was a gift. Justification, salvation has always been a gift from God. And then he quickly follows up by giving us just a slice of David's life. He says, David says the same thing, verse 6. When he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He quotes Psalm 32. After David's sinful escapade with Bathsheba, yes, he did pen Psalm 51. But he also followed it with a second hit, Psalm 32. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, not because they've earned it. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. He is forgiven and declared innocent. Now, Paul knows what he's doing. If you could look back at all the characters of the Old Testament, two of the most well-respected characters would be Abraham and David. All you got to do is throw in Moses and you got the trifecta. Because, I mean, these are some of the best individuals of the Old Testament. And here, what Paul is saying is that Abraham, David, saved in the same way that you are saved. And we are justified not by our works. Friend, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's not enough good you can do that would somehow merit your justification. There's no amount of goodness that you can do that would somehow make God obligated to save your sin-sick soul. We are justified not by works. Secondly, we are justified not by circumcision. Look at verse 9 and following. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstance was this righteousness credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. In other words, he's saying once again, look at the Bible. What does the scriptural text say? When was Abraham declared righteous? And when was he circumcised? The answer to those questions is that Abraham was declared righteous in Genesis chapter 15. Go out, look up at the stars in the heavens, count them if you can. As numerous as the stars in the sky, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteous. He became righteous. He was declared innocent in Genesis 15. It's not until Genesis 17 that he's given the sign of the covenant, circumcision. You say, but it doesn't take me very long to read from Genesis 15 to Genesis 17. I mean, didn't they just happen back to back, boom to boom, five minutes or so? And the answer is no, because in between 15 and 17, you've got 16. And in Genesis 16, that's when Father Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands. 
And Moses, who's the author of the Pentateuch, says in Genesis 16 that Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. You get to Genesis 17. When circumcision was given, Moses tells us that Abraham was 99 years old. So between chapter 16 and chapter 17, there's at least 13 years. So you can make the good argument that between chapter 15 and chapter 17, there's at least 14 years. Paul is saying, just look at the scripture. What does the Bible say? When was Abraham declared righteous? Was it before circumcision or after circumcision? And the answer is he was declared justified long before he was circumcised. There were people in Paul's day in the Roman church and they said the way somebody is saved and justified is if they're circumcised. For they have the outward sign of the covenant. And Paul says, no, God has never saved anybody by the outward sign of the covenant. Not even Abraham is saved that way. Abraham was credited with righteousness long before, a decade and a half before, he was ever circumcised. Now the reason God did this is so that Abraham would be the father of us all. He was an uncircumcised brute when God declared him righteous. So he is the father of all of us uncircumcised brutes, all the Gentiles. And he's also the father of the circumcised, the Jews. So he literally is the father of the nations. You say, pastor, why do you go on and on about this? Well, first and foremost, because Paul goes on and on about this. But secondly, let's just go one step further. Let me ask you this question. What is the sign of the new covenant? And the answer is baptism. Baptism is the outward sign of the new covenant of God's grace. So what Paul is arguing is that there is no ritual that saves you. Not circumcision, and I would even say not baptism. Long before Abraham was circumcised, he was declared righteous. He was justified. Long before anybody gets wet, in the waters of baptism, they are justified. They are declared innocent. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've got baptism in our name. We are Southern Baptists. Are you telling me that we're not saved by our baptism? And I'm telling you, we are not saved by our baptism. There are some friends of ours who are in other denominations and they really have a problem when it comes to this passage. Because there are other believers in other denominations who make the claim that baptism is necessary for salvation. That somebody can only be saved if they are baptized. Yet my friend, all we have to do is read the book. Go back to Romans chapter 4. Because what Paul is arguing is we are justified not by works and, secondly, we are justified not by circumcision or any religious ritual or rite. So we're not saved by circumcision. We're not saved by baptism. So if we're not justified by works and if we're not justified by circumcision or a religious act, 
then what's next? Third, Paul says, we are not justified by the law. Look with me at verse 13. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. There were many in that day and still some in this day who say, you know, if I'm just good enough, then a good God will let me into his good heaven. The argument is, if I'm obedient to the law enough, if I do more good than bad, it'll somehow tip the scales in my favor. And God will almost be obligated to let me in. Why? Because I'm obedient to the law. Friend, in Galatians, the apostle reminds us the law was not given until 430 years after the promise was given to Abraham. 430 years. You're not inspired by that. You're not wowed by that. I can tell by the look on your face. But let's put it in context. We have not been a nation 430 years. The United States of America is far younger than 430 years, yet there were 430 years that spanned the giving of the promise to Abraham and the giving of the law of God, the word of God, through the mediator man of God, Moses himself on Mount Sinai. 430 years. There were some people that were saying the only way that a person is justified, the only way that a person is saved is they've got to be good. They've got to obey the law of God. This was true as it was stated in the first century and people still do it today. I go to funerals. I do funerals. I hear people talking at funerals. And how many times have we heard this conversation? You know, if God lets anybody in heaven, it's got to be Bubba. And I want to say, on what basis is Bubba going to heaven? And the basis is, he was a good guy. He helped a lot of people. He did a lot of good. I remember a time I was stuck in the snow. And who comes over the horizon but Bubba? Bubba came and helped me. He's a good old boy. He's a good guy. Now, friend, I don't have any specific Bubba in mind, all right, when I'm telling you this story. Because undoubtedly, you know some Bubba's, I know some Bubba's, you know some men, some women. And the argument goes, if anybody is going to heaven, that person's going to heaven. On what basis, you want to ask? On what basis is a person going to heaven? Well, they were a good individual. They did a lot of good, helped a lot of people. And somehow God must be obligated because, you know, I know they're not perfect, but they did more good than bad. And somehow by their obedience to the law that was given of what was right and what was wrong, they did more right than wrong and they tipped the scales in their favor. And if God's gonna let anybody in, it's gotta be Bubba. Why? On what basis? Because he's obedient to the law. He never got a speeding ticket. He was obedient to the law. He helped little ladies cross the street. He was obedient to the law. I mean, he was a great guy. And Paul says, we are not justified by obedience to the law. All right, friend. So if we're not justified, if we're not saved by our works, and if we're not saved by circumcision or baptism or any ritualistic event, if we're not saved by our obedience to the law of God, then what, pray tell, saves us? How in the world is anybody saved? And Paul says, 
The way God saved Abraham is the same way he saved David, and it's the same way he's going to save you. What's the answer? Verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. The promise comes by faith. The only way that anybody is saved is faith. We read in uh, Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That word belief is synonymous with faith. In both the Old Testament Hebrew language and the New Testament Greek language, those words are synonymous. The word that's translated believe is the very same word that's translated faith. You and I may try to make a nuanced difference between those two words in English, but in the original language of the Old Testament and the New Testament, these are synonyms. To believe is to have faith. To have faith in whom? To have faith in God. To have faith in the God of the promise. It was John R.W. Stott who reminds us that the language of the law and the language of the promise, they both come from God. But the language of the law always starts with the two-word phrase, you shall. The language of promise always is a quotation of God that starts with a two-word phrase, I will. The language of the law says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false testimony. The language of the law always begins with that two-word phrase, you shall. But the language of promise always begins with God. And God declares, I will. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. I'll supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I will cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. The language of promise is always originates with God and it's spoken from his lips and he always says, I will. This is what Abraham believed. He believed the God of the promise. There are a lot of great understandings of faith, a lot of tremendous definitions of faith. Let me give you this one this morning. That faith looks at life's problems in light of God's promises. That's faith. Faith looks at life's problems in light of God's promises. We are told that Abraham, in hope, believed. He had faith, even though his body was broken down. He had faith even though he was very old. He had faith even though his sweet wife was beyond childbearing years. He had faith even though Sarah was postmenopausal. He had faith even though they both had outlived social security. He had faith in God. For the God who makes the promise is the God who can keep the promise. So he simply had faith. He had faith in the God of the promise. God said, I will. That settles it. I just simply believe it. Towards the end of our passage, the apostle says that Abraham was fully persuaded. I love that phrase. Fully persuaded. Fully persuaded of what? That God would do what he had promised. 
That's faith, where you say, I am fully persuaded, not in my ability, not in my works, not in my religious activity, not in my obedience of the law, but I am fully persuaded in the faith of God Almighty, for God will do what he promised he would do. This is the story of faith from Genesis to Revelation. The children of Israel faced the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. And they looked at life's problems in light of God's promises. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we will not bow down and worship this image of gold that you have constructed, even though they knew that would land them into a fiery furnace. For the God we serve is able to save us, O king. For they looked at life's problems in light of God's promises. Daniel, even though he was an old man by now, understood that if he stopped praying or that he kept on praying, he would be thrown to the lion's den. And Daniel said, I cannot make it a day without praying unto my God. I cannot make it a moment without communing with him. And so Daniel kept on praying and, and, and the king threw him into the lion's den. And yet Daniel looked at life's problems in light of God's promises. Paul and Silas were in a Philippian jail cell, not because they'd done anything wrong, but because they were preachers of the gospel. And at midnight, they got their worship on. At midnight, they kept praising God. They kept singing unto him. Why? Because they looked at life's problems in light of God's promises. And they, like Abraham, fully persuaded. The way you know that Abraham was fully persuaded in the promise of God is because of the story that I referenced earlier from Genesis 22. The Lord tested Abraham. Up front, you know that this is an event to build up the faith of Abraham. God was testing Abraham. Take your one and only son, Isaac, go up Mount Moriah, and there I want you to kill him. Can you imagine the amount of sleep Abraham lost that night? He said, but Father, you do not delight in child sacrifice, but Father, this is the child of promise, but Father, I must trust in you. I must believe upon you for you are the God who brings life out of death. You're the God, according to Paul in Romans chapter four, you're the God who brings something out of nothing. You speak to it as if it was, even though it was not. Oh God, you're the God of creation and resurrection, so I just have to trust in you. I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me. But God, if you say it, I'll do it. The next morning he woke up. He saddled his donkeys. He got a couple of his servants, and off they went towards Mount Moriah. They traveled three days, and they saw the mountain in the distance. And Abraham said to his servants, you boys stay here. For my son and I, we're going to go worship we will go and we'll come back. Friend, how can Abraham make such a statement? We will go, I get that one. But how can he say we are gonna come back when Abraham fully knows that one of the we ain't gonna be there because his son, his only son, his beloved son Isaac will be executed. The only way I can explain it is that Father Abraham on this side of Mount Moriah, he believed in resurrection. He believed in the God of the promise. He knew that God could bring life out of death. The boy and I will go, we will go and we'll come back. As they make their way up Mount Moriah, Isaac has the wood strapped to his back. He's carrying 
the fire. He says, Father, I see the fire and I can feel the wood against my back, but where's the lamb? We think of Ike as being a five-year-old boy fresh out of kindergarten, but if you do the math, you realize that Isaac by this time is a strapping teenage boy, probably 14, 15 years old. His father, the old man Abraham, is probably 114 to 115 years old. And the father just looks at his son and says, God will provide the lamb, my son. I don't know how, but you just have to trust me as I trust God. God will provide the lamb. As they made their way up, I'm convinced that whatever Father Abraham was thinking and feeling in his mind, he spoke in his lips, and he and his son had a great conversation to the point that by the time they got to the top, Isaac knew full well what was going to happen. Because I think that Isaac, the son, voluntarily laid himself on the altar. Keep in mind the age discrepancy. If push comes to shove, Isaac could whip his old man and outrun him down the mountain. In this moment, Isaac believes in the God of Abraham. He believes that somehow God is a God of promise. Somehow God will bring resurrection out of death. Somehow we must believe. And so Isaac willingly, voluntarily laid himself down on the altar. And I can only imagine that Father Abraham probably covered the eyes of his son. He did not want his son to have to see the death that would ensue for he wanted to turn his head away and not look. He, he shielded the eyes of his son Isaac. He drew the dagger into the air. I don't care how steady his hand may be, but dads just go with me here can you imagine having to slay your son there's an anxiety that's built up there's a stress that's overwhelming and right before Abraham drives the knife into the heart of his son because he just wants one fatal blow he does not want to have to keep stabbing his son over and over and over again and right before he drives the dagger into the heart of his son it is God who speaks Abraham Abraham stop now I know that you won't need anything from me, not even your precious boy. And in that moment, the picture of substitutionary atonement was revealed because there was a ram, a male lamb caught in the thicket. And Abraham sacrificed it instead of his son Isaac. How is Abraham justified? How's David justified? How are you justified? How am I justified? I can tell you this much, we're not justified by our works. We're not justified by circumcision or baptism. We're not justified by our obedience to the law. We are justified by faith alone in the God of the promise. When I think about Mount Moriah, I'm reminded of another mountain. Mount Calvary. When I see Mount Moriah, I realize that the son was spared. But on Mount Calvary, the son was slain. On Mount Moriah, the promise was given. On Mount Calvary, the promise was kept. On Mount Moriah, forgiveness was spoken. On Mount Calvary, forgiveness was fulfilled. On Mount Moriah, the hope of resurrection was declared. And on Mount Calvary, the hope of resurrection 
was demonstrated. The only way that any of us are justified, the only way that any of us are saved, the only way that we are forgiven of sin and declared innocent is God's sight is because we have faith in the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have faith in Christ alone. We have faith in the fact that though he was slain, he was raised on the third day because ours is a God that brings life out of death. We read the very last line of our passage and it says that this righteousness was credited to Abraham and it's not for Abraham alone it's also for us who believe for if we believe that Jesus was handed over for our sin and he was raised on the third day for our justification then we will be saved my faith has found a resting place not in device nor creed it's in the ever living one his wounds for me shall plead I need no other argument and I need no other plea it is enough that that Jesus died and that he died for me. So have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches over his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. The only way we are justified is by faith in the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ because God is the God of promise. He promised to slay the son only to raise the son so that you and I may be justified from our sins. So friend, if you've ever thought to yourself, how can I be saved? Do I have to do something? Is it a laundry list of works that I have to do? Is it a few ritualistic experiences that I have to encounter? Do I just have to do more good than bad in the hopes that God will be obligated to let me into his heaven? Friend, if you've tried to seek God's salvation and justification in those means, you know how fruitless and how demoralizing that can be. So friend, let me just tell you, the only way that you're saved is the same way that I'm saved. It's the same way that David was saved. It's the same way that Abraham was saved. By faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. If today you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, today can be the day of your salvation. The moment we sing the first note of the song, you come to this altar. If you're watching, then you just cry out to the Lord. I know that I'm a sinner. Jesus, I know you died on the cross for me to justify and declare me innocent in God's sight, both now and forevermore, so I trust you. Friend, the only way we're justified is by faith through grace in Jesus Christ alone. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Thanks for your gospel which is so true and sweet and good. And Father, we pray that if there's one here who needs to know you as Savior and Lord, today will be the day of salvation. For those of us who are justified, Lord, help us to walk out with a renewed gratitude of what Christ has done. Father, if someone needs to join this church, let it happen today. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.